Thank you. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, to beat you wise guys to the punch, I am standing up. (laughs) I'm a little shorter than Dick, but I have more hair. Uh, I... um, We're going to talk uh, a little bit today about trusting God, Um, you know, because as Dick laid out last night, you know, we trust God and we clean house, and that's the process of the 12 steps. And uh, I wanted to, um, again, um, I want to thank the committee and you gentlemen for uh, sending those flowers to my wife and thanking her for throwing me out for the weekend. And... uh, I talked to her last night, and I'm married to, I think, the finest lady I've ever known in my life. And uh, she was telling me last night, she took, uh, we go to Queen of Peace Church in Ocala, Florida, and we have a Eucharistic Adoration Chapel that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, except from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. And she said, I took the roses down to the Eucharistic Chapel last night, and I left them overnight so God would bless you and all the gentlemen at the retreat. I still don't know how I end up with a woman like that. Uh, I, um, I want to thank Dick for that film. And uh, I've watched it a hundred times. I've taken it into prisons and all kinds of things. And it's an ideal film to take places like that. And, um, and every time I watch it, I cry. I'm just so moved and so profoundly grateful for what we have in this organic organization called Alcoholics Anonymous. And how important it is for us to protect it and to keep it the way it was and to know our history. I, I once went to a meeting, and we were talking about singleness of purpose. I went, once went to a meeting in a state that's west of here. I won't tell you where it is. It will remain anonymous. But uh, if you went much further west, you get wet. And, um, <laughs> and I... Uh, I'd been traveling a lot, and I was kind of tired, and, and my lovely wife, Julia, said, Sweetheart, why don't you go out a day early? It was at a nice resort. So why don't you go out a day early and just spend a day resting? And, uh, and I thanked her, and I went out a day early, and I found a meeting that night, and it was a discussion meeting. And uh, my, I was going to sit in the back and just keep my mouth shut, but they were sitting in a circle. And the man who led the meeting was an alcoholic and an addict, the person next to him was an alcoholic and an overeater. And I'm still going to pass. I'm like number five. And uh, everything was going well until it got to the man next to me. He was an African-American alcoholic. Now, unless you were blind and an alcoholic, you knew that. And, um, <laughs> and it got to me, and I said, my name's Keith. I'm an alcoholic. I'm moderately obese, and I have a large prostate. Nobody spoke to me after the meeting. Um, I was not a very good example. Um, and, you know, really about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous really is about, about being an example. And, and I, I remember the day I was hooked. I remember the day I was hooked. I was sober about maybe six weeks. I was over five weeks, and I go to this meeting, and there's a man in Washington, D.C. named Dick L., and Dick's still very active in the fellowship. And uh, 
and he was active then. And uh, I walked in the door, and he immediately came up to me and shook my hand, and he said, is this your first time at this meeting? And I said, yes, sir, it is. And he said, my name's Dick. What's your name? And I told him. And then then he said to me, he said, said, are you married? I said, no, I'm separated. And uh, he said, do you have a family? And I said, yeah, but she won't let me see the children. And, uh, And he said, I never saw a man stay sober who didn't see his children. And he said, uh, where do you work? I said, well, I think I work at the university. They're kind of making up their minds. And, um, and he said, I never saw a man stay sober and not work. And then he asked me my children's name. And I said, uh, Kelly and Kimberly. And uh, the next week I walk in, a man I vaguely remember walks up to me and says, my name's Dick. Remember me? And I lied and said, yes. And uh, he said, Keith, how are you? And I'm, I said, I'm fine. He said, how are things at the university? I said, everything's great. I have the job. He said, that's terrific. And then he said, have you had an opportunity to talk with Kelly and Kimberly? He remembered the names of my children. That's the day I was hooked into Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I watched you, and I aspired to be like you in everything you did. And you know what was nice was the old-timers would correct me in small ways. For example, once, you know, I was such an angry guy. At uh, once in a meeting, a curse word came out. You know, my anger would come out sideways. I was so angry. I, what I was was fearful. And we'll talk about that when we get to those steps. But, but I was fearful, and, and my anger would come out sideways, and I cursed. And a very elegant lady with a British accent got me after the meeting. She said, may I ask you a personal question? I said, but of course. <laughs> and she said, do you eat with the same mouth you talk with? <laughs> you know? And I said to her, uh, I guess it's offensive. She said, it is offensive. And she said, I believe you have a vocabulary sufficient to the cause. I don't believe you need to do that. And then she said, the worst part is you lower the spiritual level. And she said, if we can't maintain a spiritual level, we all die of alcoholism. And I thought, wow, wow. And then I realized that what I do has some impact on the lives of other human beings. I used to think of myself as something on the end of a stick, you know. And, uh, you know, prior to getting into Alcoholics Anonymous, my then wife was seeing a psychologist, which explained why I drank. And... um, (laughs) And I knew what was going to happen. It always happens. She was going to say, he wants to talk to you. And I know what they've been talking about. They've been talking about my drinking. Right? So, uh, so it happened, and so they dragged me in. And, and I was desperate. I was, you know, desperation's a gift. And, and I was beginning to get the gift of desperation. And I made up my mind I was going to be as honest with this man as I possibly could because I knew something was wrong. I hadn't yet attached it entirely to my alcoholism because I didn't think I had alcoholism, but I knew I, drinking was a little bit much, but then uh, I was leading a very confusing life. And, um, and uh, so we're there, and he, he interviews me, and he's taking all these notes and everything, and she's sitting in a chair next to me. And then he said to me, he said, you know, your wife says you drink a lot. I said, I do drink a lot. And he said, how much do you drink? And I said, I probably drink about a half of fifth a day, which is about half of what I was drinking. Because I thought if you didn't pay for it, it didn't count. And, um, 
And uh, so he said, uh, uh, and, and he said, that's a lot. And I said, yes, it is a lot. And I said, do you think I'm an uh, 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 alcoholic? And he said, no, no. He said, you're too young and you're far too bright. He said, yeah. He said, your problem is, he said, you have a poor self-image. And then he looked at my wife and he said, part of it's your problem because you tear him down. And I'm thinking, I don't know what we're paying this guy, but he's worth every dime. I can tell you that. <laughs> So he, so he put together for me a list of affirmations, Keith's affirmations. And they had just come out with the IBM Selectronic typewriter, and they could make big fonts, remember that? And, and, uh, and so they type up, from my personal history, Keith's affirmations. And my job was to get up every morning and stand in front of the mirror, and I was to affirm myself, right? And, uh, and, uh, and she was to stand next to me if she could, to try to undo some of the damage she had done. And, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, I was so happy to find out I wasn't an alcoholic, I got very drunk that night. And, um, and I was affirming myself all alone the next day. And, um, and I'm standing in front of the mirror. You know how it is, you know, in the morning you have that little tremor, you know? And I got that little tremor going, and I'm looking into those yellow bloodshot eyes, you know, and I got, got my two sheets of affirmations. Keith, today you're a winner. Yeah. Yeah. Today you're a wonderful husband. I said it real loud so she could hear me. Today you're a kind and loving father. Today you're a brilliant and resourceful researcher. I got halfway down the first page. I said, today you're full of crap. That's what you are. <laughs> I may have been an alcoholic, but I wasn't an idiot. I knew, that, <laughs> I knew that there was something desperately wrong with me. And I knew it was with me. And um, what was interesting was I was sober about six years, and I got to welcome this psychologist into his very first meeting of alcoholics and <laughs> But, you know, um, you know, when we look at, at what we drag into here, you know, it, 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 the 12 and 12 bill says that recovery, you know, sobriety is about building character. Alcoholism is about destroying character. You know, as time went on, I became less and less the man I ever wanted to be than I was before. And that's why when I do my annual house cleaning, as Dick mentioned earlier, I used to do it every year with my old buddy and prayer partner Mike Way for 30 years we did our annual house cleaning together and what I would do is uh, is I would try to see areas in which I can improve my life and the old timers used to do that I remember one time I I'm sitting in a meeting with a hat on and a guy said to me why would you wear a hat you know and I said well a lot of people do it and he said but why wouldn't you do it the best way you can and there were little things like that now, you know, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world or anything like that, and there certainly are no rules or anything like that. But my job is to try to improve myself on a daily basis and try to be able to measure a little bit of improvement from you. And that's what the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are all about. When I came here, I was so spiritually ill that I was a cynic. Okay, I think that one of the symptoms of spiritual illness is cynicism and skepticism. 
I was skeptical. I questioned everything. There had to be an ulterior motive for absolutely everything. And, you know, in this journey, the day comes. And I remember my sponsor then, Sandy B. was my sponsor at the time. And he said to me one day, we had done a real good, you know, we'd done, gone through the steps, and I completed the ninth step pretty much and all of that. And he said to me, he said, today's the day when you're better off doing the wrong thing for the right reason than doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And I said, how about fake it till you make it? <laughs> and he said, that's over for you. He said, uh, if you do the wrong thing for the right reason, we call that making a mistake. He said, that's called being a human being. He said, but if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, we call that dishonesty. And in the fifth chapter, it's pretty explicit. People who don't make it are the people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with us. So motive, somewhere along the line, becomes crucially important to us. I was sober 90 days, and my estranged wife shows up. And I'm still living down on the skids. And, um, and she came in, and she made me an offer, which almost made my heart leap out of my chest. She said, how would you like to come home and live with me and watch your children grow up? And I said, I'd love to do that. She said, all I ask of you is that you stop going to those meetings and telling those people our secrets. I said, we don't tell secrets. <laughs> and she said, uh, look, she said, you've proven you can take it or leave it. You know, and she said, uh, and so and then she said to me, uh, you're welcome to come home. You're welcome to live with me and watch the children grow up. All I ask is you stop going to those meetings and hanging out with those people. And I don't know where the, I think the words came from the hundred meetings I'd been to in 90 days. I said to her, you know, my children would be better off with a sober father they couldn't see than a drunk father they had to see. And she said, you've made your decision. And she turned around and walked out. And I watched her walk down those steps and get in her car and drive away. And I just, the tears were just streaming down my cheeks. My dream had died. And I immediately called Dan, my sponsor. And I told him what had happened. And Dan wept. He was actually moved to tears when I told him because he felt my pain and my grief. But he also felt gratitude. And he said to me, Keith, you've just crossed an invisible line. He said, you crossed an invisible line into alcoholism. He said, you've just crossed an invisible line into sobriety. He said, you've made a decision that you would rather be sober than anything else in the world. He said, you have allowed God into your life into a way you never could have imagined. And what I do and did with those things is, you know, my skepticism, my cynicism would take over and I'd begin to run it through my head. And then I would milk all the spiritual value out of it. And uh, that's what cynics do. And, um, and you know, I, uh, I think so many of the, the old-timers and Dick, did such a marvelous job talking about the old timers. I think about what the old timers did for me. And, and, and I remember, um, you know, I grew up in poverty. And actually, I grew up amid great wealth, spiritual wealth. But uh, I grew up in real financial poverty. There were 11 of us. We were Irish. I won't tell you what church we went to. But, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, 
we never had a family automobile. We never had anything like that, you know. But what we had was a family who loved one another, cherished one another, and cherished the concept of God living actively in our lives. I remember uh, the kind of things that they did. Um, I remember, you know, I grew up in the steel and the coal area of Ohio and West Virginia, Pennsylvania, that tri-state area south of Pittsburgh. And um, the men who worked in the coal mines, it was a horrible thing. They would get up every morning and get dressed to go to work. And then they would turn on a radio and listen to the mine report. And they would say, the first so many men of such and such a shift and such and such a mine report to work. And if you were one beyond that, you didn't work that day. And if you didn't work that day, you didn't get paid. And we would find out, for example, that someone hadn't worked for a week or two weeks or three weeks or something like that. And my father would say to my mother, so-and-so hasn't worked for a few weeks. And, uh, and so for our family rosary, we would uh, pray for them and for their welfare and their well-being. And then after dark, you always did it after dark, my mother would find food that we didn't know we had, and she'd put it in a box. My father would find some change that he didn't know he had. And, uh, and then he would say, is there anything you would like to contribute? And I was the Duncan yo-yo champion in my hometown that year. And uh, I had the yo-yo that I had won the championship with. And, uh, and uh, the kids in the hospital I work in now call me the yo-yo man. But, um, so I always show them the tricks. But, uh, but I went and I got that yo-yo. And I remember the hard time I had dropping that thing in that box. And I dropped it in a box. My mother put her arm around me. And said, I love you so much. And, uh, and my father, my mother, my sister Patty, and myself went down the street with that box. And my father knocked on a door, and a gentleman answered the door. And he said, you're our friends, and uh, we want to, this is a small token of our friendship and our esteem for you. Would you please accept this as a favor to us? And uh, the man shook my father's hand and thanked him, and he said, would you like to come in for a cup of coffee? And we knew they didn't have any coffee. There was a little bit of coffee in the box. And, uh, and my mother said, no, we want to get back because the children have to go to bed. And, uh, and, uh, and then we would walk back, and on the way back we would pray for those people. And, uh, and you know what happened to me two years ago? Um, what's that restaurant that uh, serves uh, bowls of grease? Um, you know, the country restaurant? Cracker Barrel. They came out and remade 1956 Dunkin' Yo-Yos. My wife found one that was exactly the same color as the one I dropped in that box. So God will always give it back to you if you give it away. <laughs> So I didn't grow up devoid of spiritual values. I was loved intensely. And everything my mother did and my father did somehow was attached to some spiritual values. I don't know if any of you remember Queen for a Day. Remember that? That's where three or four people would get on a radio and they'd whine. And, you know, whoever whined the best got something. And my mother could always pick the winner. And she was always pulling for them, you know. And uh, she, I remember one day I'm doing my homework at the table, and she's peeling potatoes, and they had Queen for a day on. There's a woman who needed an automobile. And my mother said, I hope she wins. I hope she wins. And she won, and they gave her an automobile. And my mother was crying for joy. 
And, she, and I said to her, I said, we don't have a car. And she said, son, look at me. And when she really meant it, she said, look at me. And so I looked at her and she said, son, we don't need a car. God's given us everything we need. That woman needs a car. And those are the values that we grew up with. Every night, you know, they not only raised their children. If somebody's family was having a big fight, somebody was drunk or something like that, the kids would come to our house. And, uh, and so they would stay with us for a few days. And uh, every night my mother would go from bedroom to bedroom. And she would pray with us, and then she'd read us a story or a poem or something. And one of her favorites, the one we loved, and I have a I have this copy of this book. After she passed away, I, I, I asked for the book, and, and my brothers and sisters gave it to me. It's A Vision of Sir Longfold by Thomas Lowell. And, um, and it's about a man who, um, who had it all, had the best castle, the best horse, the best armor. And he's going to go in search of the Holy Grail. And the night before he's going to leave, he has a dream. And in his dream, he's leaving his castle, and there's a leper there. And he said to him, uh, would you help me? And being a big kind of guy he was, he flipped him a gold coin and went on his way. And he spent the next 20 years in search of the Holy Grail, and he failed, and he hit bottom. And he comes back, his horse is rickety, his armor is rickety, and everything. And he comes back to his castle, a complete and utter failure, having hit bottom. And there's a man, a leper there, and he says, can you help me? And he got down off his horse, and he cut his cloak in half, and he put it around the leper. And then he broke the ice in a moat, and he, all he had left was a wooden cup. And he filled the wooden cup with water, and he gave it to the leper, and then he broke a piece of bread he had in half and gave him half his bread. And then my mother would read this uh, line, and every time she read it, she would weep. And when I think about it, I weep. It says, not what we give, but what we share. The gift without the giver. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is to me. It's a program where people don't give me things. They share with me the things that are of value to them. And they become of value to me. I believe the single largest symptom of what it is I have is isolation. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was close to absolutely nothing. I became more and more and more isolated. Throughout the big book, Bill talks about our loneliness. And he does the same thing in the 12 and 12, our loneliness. I was so utterly and horribly isolated, nothing mattered to me anymore. And I had a day like Dick had uh, when I was going to take my own life. People think suicide's a big deal. For an alcoholic, it's just the next deal. You know, it's just the next deal. It's not a big deal. It's the next deal. And, um, and there was no one loved more than me. And yet I couldn't experience love. And that's a spiritual illness. A spiritual illness is we cannot experience love. And um, it's the isolation. And it's attributing causes to things which are selfish and self-centered. It's attributing skeptical and cynical uh, reasons for life. And that's what I was doing. And, um, and what happens is that we go to defiance. My single greatest characteristic as a human being was defiance. Everything I did, I did at somebody or to show somebody. I was going to show them. They never showed up to see it, which is very disturbing. But everything I did, I did at somebody. You know, I was, uh, 
I was in the Marine Corps. I was 17 years old. I was 5 feet 1 inches tall. I weighed 113 pounds. I was a born killer. And, um, <laughs> and I'm on Paris Island, and I'm, I'm like nine weeks through training. And um, I go into the, use the urinal, and the urinal is now brown. What I had done was had an injury, and I was passing blood in my urine. The technical term is hematuria. And so they put me, I'll never forget this. I, I wish I could find this man. He was my drill instructor. And I was terrified I wasn't going to make it. And, uh, and so he pulled me into the, uh, into the hutch, and he said to me, he said, son, which he never called me before. It was turd and stuff like that, but it was never son. But <laughs> he said, son, uh, do you have any questions? He said, because they're going to take you tomorrow and take you to the hospital, and you will be dropping out of our platoon. Do you have any questions? And I said, yes, sir. Am I making it? And he said, son, you're going to be a fine Marine one day. What a thing for him to do. And, you know, I ended up in a hospital, and then they took me to another hospital, and then they brought me back, and I had the same problems, and they offered me a discharge, and I turned it down, and uh, I turned it down out of defiance. I couldn't go home a failure. I was terrified of failure. We'll talk about that in the fourth step. And I... um, uh, I ended up, so they sent me to Bethesda Naval Medical Center. And I was in Bethesda Naval Medical Center. I learned a lot. I was around a lot of sailors, which isn't a good thing. And uh, it was a matter of fact, it was a chief one day who said to me, he said, you know, son, he said, the Army got the mule and the Navy got the Marine Corps. You know how that happened? I said, no, sir. He said, the Army had first choice. <laughs> He's a wonderful man. But... Um, but at any rate, I, I, uh, things got, I got better. Uh, actually, what I did was I began drinking and flushed my kidneys. And, uh, and alcohol was a magic elixir. And, uh, and so I, they put me over in headquarters Marine Corps for a short period of time. And then I got to go back to Paris Island. And they put, put me back in the second week of training. So I got to go through it the second time. And, uh, you know, the second time was a lot easier because you got it figured out by then. And I won Dress Blues Award and Outstanding Man's Award and all that business. And, uh, and uh, what I ended up doing, and I did it, and I look back at every accomplishment I'd ever made, it was always to show someone that I was somebody. It was never about service. It was never about doing things for other people or anything. It. it was always about me. That's spiritual illness. That's what it's all about. It's all about, Bill describes it beautifully, selfishness and self-centeredness. That we think is the root of our problem. We don't think it. We know it now. We have enough experience to know it. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problem. And you know, um, um, reliance is the first great spiritual leap that we make in Alcoholics Anonymous. Reliance. I remember the best I felt early in my sobriety, the best I felt all day was at the end of the Lord's Prayer, at the end of the meeting. The best I felt all day. I really felt like I was in line with the God of the universe. Now, I could chase it away in no time. And, you know, I begin to obsess and to do this and to do that, and I chase it away. But I came to rely on going to those meetings calling my sponsor, going 
uh, on 12-step calls with the old-timers. My sponsor answered the phones at the intergroup office from 7 until 10 on Monday night. He and his sponsor did it for a year and a half. Then Dan and I did it for a year and a half. And then Alan and I did it for a year and a half. And then Alan and Teb did it for a year and a half. And I think it's still going on. And, uh, but doing those things. First time I, I went to a jail, uh, my first 12-step call was in a jail. And I was sober about 50 days. And Dan said, we have to go down to the D.C. jail. And uh, we're going to carry the message to a man who's suffering. And I, great, I was all fired up. So we go down and we sign in. And, and they had this, this glass, you know, and you talk on the phone. And Dan's talking to this guy. I can't hear anything this guy's saying, but I'm hearing what Dan's saying. And I keep thinking, when are you going to let me talk? When's he going to let me talk, you know? And um, so finally, after about 50 minutes, he said, I brought a friend with me who's sober almost two months, and he's doing really well. And he said, I want to let him talk to you for about five minutes. I'm thinking, five minutes? I got a lot to say, five minutes. And uh, so I grabbed the phone, and I began to preach to this guy, right? And finally, uh, the guy said to me, hey, wait a minute, buddy, wait a minute. He said, look, he said, uh, he said this AA crap's all right for a guy like you. He said, but, he said, I'm a Fulbright scholar. I said, well, Mr. Fulbright scholar, one of us is leaving here in a few minutes, and one of us is going back to his cell. And... Um, <laughs> So Dan's trying to get the phone from me. I'm not finished, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm down on the floor talking to this guy on the phone. And uh, finally the guards came to see what was going on. And Dan got the phone away from me. And he said to the guy, y'all come back and talk to you tomorrow. Y'all come alone. And hung up the phone. And... <laughs> so we go out of the jail. And I know I'm going to get drummed out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Uh, so we go out of the jail, and we're walking over, and, uh, and uh, I, I said to Dan, I said, that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> and I'll tell you the kind of guy he was. He said, well, he said, I'll be honest with you, Keith. He said, most guys wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, but, he said, but we all develop our own technique in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And you know what I learned with all of those silly, stupid things I did? What I learned was I'm going to be loved in spite of. I'm going to be cared about in spite of. That's what I learned. That was the great lesson. And what that began to do was to break down my defiance. And I began to rely on you people for my peace of mind, for my calmness, for my day-to-day sobriety. But most of all, I began to rely on you for your guidance so that I could begin to grow spiritually. Because I believed what the old timers said, the old man will drink again. And I knew that to be true. And um, I'd always thought that life was about information. Okay? I always thought if you had enough information, you did all right. It's not about information. It's about action. And it's about being on a journey. It's not about accumulating information or knowledge. It's about accumulating wisdom. And wisdom is spiritual in nature. Knowledge exists on its own. But wisdom is always attached to God and to life and to spiritual improvement. 
And, um, you know, I was, uh, I've had the privilege of running into people who have changed my life. And it, they always pop up when they're needed. I was sober about a year, and I was back visiting my family. And, um, and there was, I, I knew that, that, that there were this group of guys, there were five guys who ran together. And uh, they were sober a long time. It was, it was a long time, 31 years ago. And uh, one of them was sober like 32 or 33 years. And uh, the youngest of the crew was sober 28 years. And it was funny because I'm sitting with him in his cafeteria, and they said to the guy, go get coffee, you're the new guy. And I said, I'll get the coffee. No, you're a guest. He's the new guy, 28 years. He said, I always have to get coffee. It was a running joke with him, you know. So he went and got six cups of coffee. And then a new guy came in, and they grabbed him, so he went and got a seventh cup of coffee. And, um, and they're sitting around, and this man told me a story that shows me the power of the spiritual program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had been a vice president with a large steel company in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, he had lost everything, including his job. And he's living in what is, in effect, a cell in a basement of a nut house in Huntington, West Virginia. And, um, and he said that, uh, he said the, the, the keeper, he said there were three other guys in there, and he said they were wet brains, and, and they, in effect, had them restrained to the wall so they wouldn't hurt themselves. And uh, he said a guy opens the door, and he says three men walk in in suits. And because uh, that's the way they did 12-step calls in the old days, in suits. And they walk in in suits and said, we would like to discuss uh, Alcoholics Anonymous with you gentlemen. And this man said, uh, I don't want to talk to you about that. And so they sat down with these three guys who were wet brains, and they held cigarettes for them and talked to them and told them their stories. And uh, this man's watching this, and he got up. they got up to leave, and he said... Uh, to this one tall gentleman, he said, uh, you people are out of your minds. He said, those people are nuts. They didn't hear a thing you said. And this tall gentleman said to him, sir, you don't understand. We're here, so we don't have to drink. And it hit him like a bolt of lightning, and they closed the door, and they're going down the hall, and he screamed, would you come back and talk to me? And he said, we'll be back in a few days. The tall gentleman was Dr. Bob Smith. This man got sober. He went back. He was such a force in his town that the steel company hired him back as a vice president for 30 days so they could retire him as a vice president of the corporation. And I said to him, how does that happen? He said, it happened because one day I got on my knees with that tall gentleman and I gave my will and life over to a power that was greater than me. And I said, what's that mean? He said, that means you give up your will. He said, you accept what God sends your way. You don't make it happen. And, you know, when you grow up in poverty, as I did, you got to make it happen. And, uh, and it, it, what a lesson. That's the lesson, really, of the second and third step. That, of course, we have dreams. Of course, we do. But, you know, if I'd have gotten my dreams, I'd be dead by now. I mistook the gifts or the talents that God gave me for the dreams that I wanted to accomplish. And what I understand now is that if I live this life the way you've laid it out for me, 
and I use the talents that God has given me, his dream will evolve, which is greater than any dream I could ever come up with. My old buddy Dick Corcoran, who's been gone now for some years, used to say to me, my most persistent old idea is that I know what's best for me. (laughs) And of course that's not so. We don't know what's best for us. You know? And I remember, um, again, I was sober a little bit less than a year, and I was out doing an AA thing. They, they, back then, I, some of you gentlemen might remember this, many of the churches would ask us to come, like maybe on a Sunday evening or a Monday evening or something, and talk to their parishioners about Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had a list of us you know, at the intergroup office who would volunteer to do that. And a man who's now gone, my dearest, oldest friend, Mike Way, um, got sober in Newburn, North Carolina. Uh, Mike would have had 34 years now. And um, he uh, had just moved to Washington, D.C. And, uh, and he was uh, probably the most, I think, one of the most brilliant speakers I ever heard in my life. He was just wonderful. And he had a greatest sense of humor. And uh, so he and I, I just met him for the first time that night. So we're out at this church talking. And he could put on an earnest angelly act. He was just an amazing guy, you know. And uh, he was, uh, he's talking. And he said to me, we went for coffee afterwards. I enjoyed him so much. We went for coffee. And he said to me, he said, look, I just moved here. He said, I'm looking for a prayer partner. He said, uh, I, and that really offended me because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous religiously anti-religious. You know, I made a religion against being against religion. And, uh, you know, and I'd sit around waiting to be offended. In the old days, it didn't take long. And, um, and um, so I said to him, I said, I don't pray much. And he said, well, that's okay. He said, look, I'll pray you partner. And that began a friendship that developed into one of the most beautiful things that ever happened in my life. And, you know, uh, about a year later, uh, I gave Mikey Way a set of rosaries. And uh, on his deathbed, he gave them back to me. He passed away a year ago in January. And uh, I held his hand every day in a hospice. And we prayed together. And you know, every day, when we would lay out our prayer petitions, every day Mike prayed for the newcomers of Alcoholics Anonymous, that they might find God. He said the God of the loving tradition, the loving God of the second tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Every day, that was his prayer. And, you know, he was so good about those things. I remember one time some woman said to him, she was, um, she was uh, you know, 13-stepping a lot of new guys. And Mike pulled her aside and said, you know, you've got to learn to, you got to leave these new guys alone. He said, they have a right to get sober. She said, he said, uh, this isn't God's will for you. And she said, God loves me just the way I am. And he said, that's true, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> and, you know, that's true. That's true. God will put a roadblock in front of us, and he'll stop us, you know. And when we talk about the fourth step, um, I always talk, you know, Mike always talks about, uh, you know, needy Jay meeting needy Joe 
on AA campus. And he said, it's like two ticks and no dog. <laughs> he said, they suck from each other till they both die. <laughs> so he had a phenomenal sense of humor about these things. And, uh, and to this day, I miss him, although he told me he'd be my prayer partner for all eternity. And I, I really do experience his presence because he was such a powerful presence in my life. To this day, I experience his presence. And, you know, I was never beaten in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was never talked rude to or anything like that. I was pulled up short a number of times. But I remember uh, after my sponsor, Dan, left town, I was sober a little over two years, and I sponsored myself for about a year, which meant I had an idiot for a sponsor. And, um, and my life began to fall apart. And, uh, and so I, I, there was a man around named Sandy B., and uh, so I said to Sandy, I said, could I talk to you about sponsorship? He said, yeah. He said, bring your running shoes over uh, Saturday morning to my place. And he said, we'll go running and we'll talk. Well, I didn't have any running shoes. I had four cartons of cigarettes, but I didn't have any running shoes. And um, so I'll tell you, to my degree of honesty, I went and bought a pair of running shoes and I put dirt on them. And... You know, you got to be accepted. And um, so I go over to Sandy's house, and, and uh, so we put on our running shoes. We take off. Now, when you smoke four packs of cigarettes a day and you're running, you tend to get to the point in a hurry. And uh, so we're running along. And I said to Sandy, would you sponsor me? And uh, Sandy uh, looked at me and smiled, and he said, uh, do you believe in God? And I had an old idea. And the old idea was that if you don't believe entirely, if you have any doubt at all, it means you don't believe. And that's really an old idea. I've come to realize now that doubt is an element of faith. If I don't have doubt, I don't need faith. And uh, so we're running along, and he looked at me, and, he, and, uh, he's, and, and I knew this had to be a, I was desperate, and I knew this had to be a very, very good answer. So we're running along, and he said, and when he said, do you believe in God? And I said, no, I'm not sure if I believe in God or not. And he said, that's too bad, Keith. That means you're probably going to die. And I stopped. Uh, you know, if, if you're going to die, there's no sense in getting in shape. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I thought for a minute, and then I ran up and I caught up with him. And I said, you know, I'm willing to go home and reconsider my opinion. He said, if you're willing to reconsider your opinion, you're going to live, you're going to stay sober, and you're going to have me for a sponsor. And that's what it's all about. It's all about the willingness to reconsider my position. And that's as true today as it was 30 years ago. And uh, Sandy sponsored me through the steps. We had an absolutely incredible time. It was just amazing to me. And he too would, uh, would t- tell me when I hit certain, uh, when I hit certain times in my sobriety. And, and I would sit and talk to him about, and he, he, he called on me to do something. And it was something that Mike and I, an exercise Mike and I used to do a lot too. And the exercise was simply this. Go back in your life and figure out how God had his hand in certain events. Dick was talking about the uh, Soviet embassy, you know, the Soviets. I was in Washington, D.C. when I got sober, and the man who owned the house in which, the basement in which I lived, was an attorney who was representing the Soviet embassy and they were exchanging people up in Siberia. They were exchanging scientists 
and Americans were beginning to go over and study, and the uh, Russians were beginning to come over and study. And uh, so he said to me, he said, uh, they were talking about alcoholism. I told him I had a friend who stopped drinking. Would you be willing to go to the Russian embassy and talk to them? And I said, well, I'm pretty new. And he said, well, that's okay. You know, just go talk to them. And so he took me over there. And... Um, and we talked, and I, t- I talked to him what I, little I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I explained to him that, that we're told to turn our will and lives over to the care of a power greater than ourselves. And the one guy said to me, could that be the state? <laughs> <laughs> I said, we're told it can be anything. And, um, and uh, so uh, and then they, I was there about two hours, something like that, and they gave me this beautiful big basket. You know, so I carry the big basket out and put it in Dan's car, and Dan drives me home, and I carry the big basket downstairs. It was absolutely magnificent. There was caviar in there. You, you don't get a lot of caviar in Skid Row. Um, there were Cuban cigars. Yeah. And there were two bottles of vodka. <laughs> Which I looked at immediately, ran upstairs and gave to Dan. <laughs> and... Um, and, you know, but when I look back, I saw God's hand in my life in so many things. Because that night, I sat and I thought, you know, as new as you are, you carried the message. Now, I don't know if it was effective or not. It doesn't matter. What matters is that I was willing to carry the message to the Russian embassy and uh, just talk to them. And my friend told me some years later, he visited me. I was studying in France and. He came through Paris and spent some time with me, and Dan did, and he said to me, he said, uh, those people were most impressed that a bright young person like you could grasp a hold of some concepts that so dramatically changed your life. And it wasn't me. It was the concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was the power that was taking place in my life that I didn't even recognize as the power. And yet, I knew about experiencing power. Anybody, anybody ever been between the second and third drink who's alcoholic knows all about experiencing the power. And uh, yet I was experiencing the power, and I was constantly drawn back to the source of that power, which is you. There were days when I didn't know I was going to make it or not. So what I'd do is I'd leave work, and I'd drive to where the meeting was. The meeting started at 8.30. I might get there at 6 o'clock. And I'd sit in the parking lot till people started showing up. I'd skip dinner. I'd sit in the parking lot till people started showing up. And then I would go, and I would um, help them set up the meeting and do this and do that. I knew I had to be around the power. If there was any doubt or any question in my mind at all, I knew I had to be around the power that God emanated through the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it always touched me. It always gave me hope. It always gave me everything I ever needed. And, um, and the way they did things, um, they had not rules, but they had things that were traditional. And I was always, I thought if I could impress them. See, because I always, never felt as though I belonged. Between the second and third drink, I belonged. But, I mean, aside from that, I never belonged. And, uh, and I remember the first time I was asked to lead a meeting. Uh, it was a discussion meeting, and you always prepared your topic, right? And so I'm going to impress these people. It was at a halfway house on, on North, Northwest First Street in Washington, D.C. 
So I drove down there. I had written out all these three by five notes on three by five cards, and I had all these notes and everything. And I'm gonna gonna uh, lead a meeting, and um, but I'm gonna impress them. So I go into this meeting and I sit down, and I figure that. And I said to him, I said, I haven't had time to prepare a topic, and then I was gonna tell him all this stuff I studied. See, I was just brutally honest, and um, and I said I haven't had time to prepare a topic, but. And that's as far as I got. And this old-timer said, then, don't talk. If you don't care enough about us to prepare a topic, then, you know, we don't need to listen to what you have to say. And he said, has anybody here prepared a topic recently? And this brown nose down the table put his hand up. (laughs) And he said, I led a meeting a few days ago on resentment. He said, good, you lead the meeting. There's at least one guy here who needs it. And... uh, When it was over, I was so embarrassed, and this is one of the hardest things I ever did. I drove over to my sponsor's apartment, I knocked on his door, and he answered the door. And I said, could I talk to you? He said, of course you can. Come in. And I went in, and Dan and I sat down, and I told him what I had done. And he said to me, he said, I want you to do me a favor. I said, anything. He said, I want you to go back to that meeting next week, go early, and say to that man, I owe you an apology. This is what I did. And uh, I did. I went back early. And, uh, and I found a man who was the chairman of that particular meeting. And I said to him, I said, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, but, you know, last week I prepared a topic. I wanted to impress you and, uh, because I want to stay around here. And he said, you don't stay around here because you impress people. You stay around here because you work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, would you do us the honor of leading the meeting with that topic tonight? And then he pulled a guy aside who prepared a topic, talked to him. I don't know if he explained the whole thing to him, but he asked if I could lead the meeting instead. And I got to lead that meeting. And after the meeting was over, he hugged me. And he said, that's one of the finest meetings I've been in in a long, long time. The principals run this whole show. They really do. And... Um, and, you know, if fear runs it, then we're in deep, deep trouble. I was um, um, just riddled with fear. And uh, I believe fear is a driving motivation in the lives of most alcoholics. It certainly was in, in my life. And it drove everything, drove absolutely everything. And, um, you know, when I was sober a little while and Sandy was my sponsor, and I told him, uh, I said, Sandy, I have a hard time with the, the way the uh, four steps laid out in the, 12 and tw- in the big book. And he said, I understand that. He said, I had a hard time getting my head around that too. And I said, uh, he, said you don't, he said, you don't get drunk by not taking the fourth step exactly the way it says. You get drunk by not taking the fourth step. He said, I'm going to give you a way to start. And he said, the day will come when you'll do it the way it says in the book. So he took a yellow pad and a number two pencil. And he said, it's a spiritual axiom. You cannot lie to yourself with a yellow pad and a number two pencil. (laughs) I said to him, I said, Sandy, lawyers use yellow pads and number two pencils. He said, I said, you can't lie to yourself. And and then he wrote at the top of the page, he wrote fear. You know, and he said, I want you to list all your fears. I said, I'm not afraid of anything. 
He said, you know, one time he said, we were running together. And he said, that big dog came, came running down the driveway and you pushed me in front of the big dog. <laughs> he said, I'm under the impression you're afraid of big dogs. And I said, well, okay, I'm afraid of big dogs. He said, so I wrote down big dogs. I thought for a minute, I said, you know, I'm not crazy about little dogs. I wrote down little dogs. You know? <laughs> it's like took the lid off, you know, and it began to roll out. And, and what I discovered, for example, that, that uh, so many of my fears conflicted with one another. Like I said last night, I was terrified of failure. I thought if you failed, you were nobody. But I was also afraid of success. If you're successful, they expect more out of you next time. Right? And so what I do is I would work like crazy to become successful. And then I would derail myself. I'd shoot myself in the foot somehow. I'd either leave the job or I'd do something stupid or whatever. Okay? I was terrified of poverty. But I learned not to like rich people. Harken back to early in my sobriety. And uh, Dan called me up and he said, I want you to meet me at the Foxhall Group which was only about two blocks from where I worked at the university. So I want you to meet me at the Foxhall Group. There are two really good speakers tonight. I said, I don't go to that meeting. And he said, why? I said, it's just a bunch of rich snobs. And he said, have you ever been there? I said, no, but I heard all about it. <laughs> and he said, you know, Keith, what they are is a bunch of alcoholics. And I said, but they don't even use styrofoam cups. And he said, well, they decided they don't want to throw all that styrofoam into the landfill, so they bought their own cups, and they wash them. He said, what do you care? He said, just go. And I said, yeah, but they have those little snacks. They have those little sandwiches with no crusts on the bread and everything. And, um, and uh, he said, look. He said, just go. So we had a deal. Dan was a big guy. He was from West Virginia. He had grown up in the coal fields. He's a big guy. We had a deal. If I did what he said, he wouldn't break my knee. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, Whenever I'd whine and tell him I had nothing to be grateful for, he said, you have two perfectly good knees. And uh, I said, that's a place to start. And uh, so I go to the Foxhall group. Now, we used to dress up to go to meetings, okay? Now, you didn't wear a coat and tie all the time, but you always looked nice, you know? So I found the rattiest clothes I could wear. And I, and I dragged them out, and I, they didn't even fit me. They were hanging and everything. And, so, and I got my own styrofoam cup, thank you, and... Um, <laughs> And I went off to the meeting, and he looked at me, and he just shook his head. And we're, go- we're going through the line, and there was a man there named Roland. And Roland was a uh, professor at Georgetown University. He was a professor of romantic poetry, you know, Byron, Shelley, Keats, that bunch. And uh, I later took a course from him. He was a wonderful man. And he had a handlebar mustache, right? He also had handlebar eyebrows. I never saw anything like it. Right? <laughs> and, um, and so he's behind the counter, and he said to me, how do you like our meeting? And I said, the Swedish meatballs suck. And um, Dan hit me in the back of the head. He said, get through the line. You're sorry. And, and I'm just beside myself, right? And Because uh, I'd already had a, made up my mind about these people, right? And so two guys spoke that night. I didn't hear a word they said. One man's name was Hal Marley. The other man's name was Sandy B. Hal's gone now, of course, so I can use his last name. They both were to play a huge role in my life, but I didn't hear a thing they said because my head was going 150 miles an hour. And when it was over, Dan said to me, let's go out in the garden. They had a little garden with little benches and things, and we went out, and 
he sat next to me and he put his arm around me. And he said, will you answer a question for me honestly? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, do you want to be poor the rest of your life? I said, of course not. And he said, look, when did you go to work? I said, I was 12 years old. And he said, yet you have nothing. I said, well, she, he said, look, if she has anything, she didn't get it from you. And that was true. And, um, and he said, uh, look at your past. He said, you've worked at least one job since you were 12 years old. He said, and yet you've accumulated nothing. Why is that? And I said, I don't know. And he said, I'll tell you why it is. He said, because you've made up your mind that people who are successful are bad people. And he said, so you sabotage your own success constantly. He was absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. From then on, every Monday night, I was at the Foxhall Group eating those little sandwiches with no crusts on them. I didn't eat dinner that night. I'd just go there and eat. Um, But I came to realize how fear had driven absolutely every aspect of my life. And then the second thing I did was um, was, uh, he turned a couple pages and then he wrote down anger. And in parentheses, he put resentment. We know resentment is from a Latin word which means to refeel. And I always thought of resentment in terms of anger, but I see now resentment reared its ugly head in a thousand different ways. You know, I resented um, and relived everything. Every man who was ever important in my life, every man in authority owed me something. And I realized this in my fourth and fifth step. You know, for example, a drill instructor, uh, my sergeant, platoon sergeant in the Marine Corps, They didn't understand their job. They thought their job was to train me and to give me orders. They didn't realize their job was to make me feel good about myself, to affirm me. I was reaching back into my past and making demands on my present because my father never affirmed me, you know, and uh, put me on a potty chair backwards or something. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't good. And, um, and, uh, And so I realized during the course of this, that all of my resentments had to do with the fact that I was making demands on the present because of something I consider to be unfair or a victim of the past. I had a good friend one time. We sat down and outlined a book called The Art of Victimhood, but nobody wanted to publish it. (laughs) And victimhood really is an art. It's an art form. And I had become a victim. I was a victim of everything. And uh, I discovered when I was going through my resentment list and my anger list, and I was angry with God, I was angry with organized religion, I was angry with everything, everything. And uh, then he skipped two pages, and he wrote sex. And he said, go back as far as your mind can carry you. And I did. And I began to make some observations about sex. The biggest observation I made was just how selfish and self-centered I was about sex. It was all about me. It was all about my gratification. It was all about my satisfaction. You know, one of the big resentments I had was uh, when I was on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, I received a dear John letter from my uh, high school sweetheart. Now, if you didn't get a dear John letter in the service, you didn't have a girlfriend when you left. And uh, and uh, and you know, I was so tied into this 
that every woman I ever dated or was married to paid for it. Um, I remember, and I'd have these fantasies. You know, I'd be sitting in a bar making little rings with a glass on the bar, you know, and uh, and I would, uh, I'd see myself in this movie I'd make up in my head. I'd be sitting there. I had a white dinner jacket on. I looked a little like Bogey, and uh, there was a guy playing the piano over there, and um, we looked across the room, and there she was. Okay? Now, her, um, she had been a ballerina, so she had great legs. Her breasts were a little larger than I remember them, but it's my fantasy. Um, (laughs) And then our eyes meet, and immediately she knows what a mistake she's made. And she comes over with tears in her eyes to apologize. And I had about ten endings. (laughs) And uh, what I was doing was refeeling the rejection and all the rest of it. And what I was, was I was a guy who dedicated his life to paying them back for what they had done to me. And, um, and you know, um, that's utter insanity. It is utter insanity. You know, I went, to, um, I went to Sandy and said, when can we do my fifth step? I had completed this. And he said... Um, I don't want you to do your fifth step with me. He said, you and I will pray about who you're supposed to do it with. And I said, why? And he said, well, I'll tell you later. And um, so uh, we prayed about it, and there's a man, Ed C., who uh gotten sober in 1964 with Sandy and, and Howe, and uh, he now lives back in San Antonio where he came from. And um, I was with him just a few years ago. And I went and asked him if he would hear my fifth step. He said he would. And he told me a few years ago when I was with him, he said, I've never done this before or since. But for some reason, I did it with you. And he said to me, he said, look, he said, I want you to do exactly what the fifth step says. And I said, "Uh, what do you mean? He said, well, what does it say? I said, well, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. He said, okay, I want you to find a place where you think God might hang out, where you experience God. And I want you to tell God exactly who you are and exactly what you've done. I thought he's out of his mind. But I'm desperate enough to follow suggestions. You know, a couple years before, actually about three years before I got sober, uh, my second daughter was born. And she was dying. And... um, she weighed. She was three months premature. Weighed less than two pounds, and uh, she's dying. In an utter desperation, this drunk ran down to a chapel, and I'd been in a chapel in a while. I'd long since given up on God. And I went into this chapel, and I got on my knees, and I begged God for my little girl's life. And I promised God that if you let her live, I'll do anything. If you let her live, I won't drink anymore. I was drunk in twelve hours. I was so powerless over alcohol, I drank when I thought drinking would kill my little girl. My favorite French, French philosopher is Blaise Pasquale, and he said God created man in his own image. Unfortunately, man returned to favor. I created a God who would kill a little girl because her dad was sick. That's not the God I serve today. I went back to that chapel. I put on a three-piece suit. And I went back to the chapel, and I discovered myself. I'm sitting there, and I said, remember me? 
I'm the guy who used to serve 545 Mass when nobody else wanted to. <laughs> you know, you got to lay the groundwork, you know. And, um, <laughs> and I said, you know, I'd, no matter how deep the snow was, I'd, <laughs> that stuff, you know. And I, uh, and I told God, to the best of my ability, exactly who and what I was. And um, I left there a free man. If we read the promises on page 75 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it tells us precisely, precisely what will happen to us. It says, we go, we pocket our pride and go to it illuminating every twist of character every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken his step with holding nothing, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we're on a broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. So many meetings, they read the promises from page 83 and 84. That's so far down the road. That is so far down the road. I think of the bulk of the people don't make it because they don't do the fourth and fifth step. I wish we'd read these promises. You know, because it might encourage newcomers to do the work. The impression a lot of people come away with is, well, if I go to meetings, these promises will happen. No, it's the work we do that make these promises happen. You know, I finished that. I left there, and I could barely keep from weeping. I felt so much release and so much relief. And I walked, um, drove back to my little place, and I sat in front of a full-length mirror, and I told myself precisely who and what I was. Then I chased Ed down. He happened to be down in Ocean City, Maryland, and I drove down. I used to think I was afraid of people. I was afraid of God, and I was afraid of me. I would have told anybody who was willing to listen once I had told God and told myself. And I chased Ed down, and uh, we talked. And I read to him what I'd read to God and what I'd read to myself. And I left there freer than I'd probably ever been in my entire life. Those first five steps. The, the, and that's the beginning of the house cleaning. We always want to think that the house cleaning is doing steps four and five. You know, I uh, just moved into our new home in December. I still have boxes of stuff in a garage I have to go through. When I moved into Alcoholics Anonymous... I had a whole warehouse stuff I had to go through. All the damages I had done and all the rest of it. The house cleaning means that as we look back over our lives, everything that we've ever broken is to the best of our ability repaired. We think that house cleaning has to do with finding the grosser elements. Okay? You know, um, Bill is a classic writer. Um, and you know, when... Uh, Classic writers write. One of the really brilliant things that happen is, and I like to do this, and I frequently do this. When I meditate in the morning, I frequently will go to the last paragraph or the last two paragraphs in either the big book or the 12 and 12 
and read those paragraphs because classic writers sum it up in the last couple of paragraphs. You know, they tell you what they're going to tell you, they tell you what they tell you, then they tell you what they told you. And, you know, uh, where I got sober, we didn't read how it works at the beginning of meetings. I think it's a fine thing, but we didn't do it. We read the preamble and then had the meeting. And if someone was leading a meeting, they would qualify for a few minutes, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. So you got to hear many stories every day. And my mind was such that I couldn't grasp much beyond a mini story. And, uh, and, but what we were told to do was to read the fifth chapter every day for six months. And I love the last paragraph in the fifth chapter. It says, in this book, you read it again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. I think that is just absolutely brilliant. I'm convinced that the AA way of life is a way of life that grows in faith and grows in faith and grows in faith. One of the uh, things that happened to me uh, was I discovered, I I had this thought that, uh, well, I had used, my my degrees were in philosophy and theology. I knew about God, but I didn't know, I didn't know God, you know. I thought if I could learn enough about him, if I ever bumped into him, I might be able to defend myself. But, um, and uh, I began to see God work in the lives of other human beings. And, you know, early in my sobriety, I remembered a principle I had learned in philosophy. It's called the prudent man theory. Now, I wasn't really into buying everything you people said to me, right? I mean, I'd have those moments of doubt and, uh, you know, the cynicism and the, would take over and that sort of thing. And I remember one day I'm walking down the hallway in the hospital I worked in, and I thought, you know, no real professional has told me I'm an alcoholic. Only those people who want my quarter in a collection basket are telling me I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, it just I don't know where that thought came from. It just drifted through my head, right? So then I remembered that there was a psychiatrist who worked in that hospital, and I directed the genetics uh, laboratories. And he had a... Um, his name is Bill Flynn, and Bill had a um, clinic down on the eastern shore of Maryland. And I would drive down with him. I'd donate one day a month, and I'd drive down with him and do genetic testing. They had a lot of intermarriage down there, you know, and uh, they, they had some really interesting genetic phenomena going on. And uh, so I, we'd drive back and forth. It was about a two-and-a-half-hour drive, I guess, and we'd talk. And I got to know Bill pretty well. And I thought, I want to find out from Bill if he thinks I'm an alcoholic. Right? So I go and knock, you know, go into his office and his secretary. I said, is Bill available? She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's, he's free, just a second. So I went on in. He got me a cup of coffee. We sat down drinking coffee. I told him a little bit of my story. I almost killed myself. I'm going through the whole routine. And I said, uh, and they're telling me that I need to go to AA for the rest of my life. And he said, well, tell me. He said, have you wanted to kill yourself since you've uh, been with these people? <laughs> and I said, No. And he said, well, tell me, have you, um, uh, have you uh, had a drink since you've been hanging out with these people? I said, no. He said, well, that's magnificent. He said, you know, 
Prior to Alcoholics Anonymous, your chance of getting sober was about one in a thousand. He said, now, if you do what those people tell you to do, you can be well. And he said, look, he said, why don't you do everything they tell you to do for a year and then come back and see me? You know, in 1980, I had the privilege in New Orleans of walking into a room and publicly proclaiming my gratitude to Dr. Bill Flynn, who was a Class A member of Alcoholics Anonymous the day I walked into his office. He was... I could have picked from hundreds of psychiatrists. I picked the one who's a trustee of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he never told me that. I discovered it later. He never told me that, you know. But I tell you, he did use me later. He did, a, he did an interesting thing. Later on, you know, uh, he used me as part of this. What do you do is he had medical students, and when they were studying alcoholism, he would get members of AA to go to their dorm rooms or to their apartments and do a 12-step call, just like they were drunks, like they had called. What they'd have to do is they'd have to call and say, would you come and talk to me, right? Just like a drunk is supposed to do. So we'd go and we'd, we'd do a 12-step call, and then we'd take them to an open AA meeting, a speaker meeting, you know, so they would be familiar with what it is we do. Bill told me later, he said, you know, about one in ten stayed. <laughs> <laughs> So the reality is that what we have here is a power beyond our wildest imagination. And very quickly, just let me say that I was, um, I did the prudent man theory. And uh, I was sober about five, six weeks maybe, seven weeks. And, uh, and I remember the prudent man theory in my philosophical training. The prudent man theory says this, if they're right and you're wrong, you're going to die. If you're right and they're wrong, you'll save a lot of money. Your liver will be back to normal, and you get back in the big bed. So I said, I'm going to do exactly what they tell me to do for six months, everything. I'm not going to miss one thing they tell me to do. And I got out my little pocket planner, and I circled six months down the road. Right? Six months later, get this now. When I circled it, I'm in the skid row, basement of a skid row house. Six months later, I'm walking down to Champs-Élysées in Paris. I pull out that book to see what, what, if I had anything planned for that day, and I open it up, and there's that red circle around that day. And here's a guy sitting on a curb in the Champs-Élysées near the Arc de Triomphe, weeping. And someone came by and said, son, are you all right? And I said... I'm sober seven and a half months in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the prudent man theory works. And I made up my mind that I was going to do everything I was told for every day that God grants me on this earth that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.